morning. Today's scripture will be from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and the praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Mallory. <clears throat> well, this morning we're going to start a uh, series that's going to take us through the fall, working through this um, little book in the New Testament called Philippians. It's actually not a book. It's a, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church that he planted in the city of Philippi. And any, any scholar, any commentator that you might read about this book will tell you that its central theme is joy. It's the, it's the kind of the Bible's treatise on joy, as it were. The, the word joy shows up in different word forms 16 different times in just four short little chapters. It's, it's, the, it's the kind of the Bible's magnum opus on this idea of joy. And yet here's what's fascinating about it is that Paul's not writing this letter uh, from a hammock on a beach drinking a daiquiri. He's, he's in a Roman prison, which in the first century, there's probably there, no worse place that you could be. Because when you and I think about prison, if you have in your mind kind of modern images of state or federal prisons, get that out of your head. Our, our prisons are, uh, have some level of regulations and in terms of safety and lighting and food provisions, and that is not the situation that Paul finds himself in. Uh, so if you're picturing Paul on a mattress in a well-lit and air-conditioned cell, that is not the image to have in your head. Picture him in a dark and dungeon-like space where he might have his hand or arm chained to a stone wall or something like that. I mean, it's a really horrible, horrific place that he finds himself in. And uh, in fact, one commentator I read this week said, quote, conditions in Roman prisons were often quite gruesome. It was not uncommon for prisoners to take their own lives under such conditions, end quote. So he's in a, he's in a horrific place. And uh, so the joy that he's talking about is not this naive sentimentality. He's not, this is not happy, clappy, sweet, syrupy, toxic positivity. He's talking about something that actually transcends circumstances, 
something that's deeper than, uh, that, that allows you to even go through horrific situations, suffering even, facing anguish and despair and death, and to still be able to tap into this thing called joy, which I think will be really helpful uh, for us as a community to think about and meditate on for the next few weeks, uh, months together. But the question is, I mean, it feels so foreign to us. How in the world do we get that? Because the way that modern people typically think about joy is we think the path to joy is by gaining. If I can get more vacation or me time or square footage or nice meals out or self-actualization or achievements, or likes and retweets, or money, or whatever it is. We think if I can get more, if I can gain that, I'll get my hands on some joy. And yet what Paul's going to show us is that Christian joy is so upside down, it's so counterintuitive, it does not come by gaining, it comes by losing. Christian joy does not come by gaining, it comes by losing. In fact, let me give you just a couple little snippets, little previews of what's to come. Look, here's Philippians 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. He writes this. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He's saying, I've lost all the things that I thought that I needed in order to give me joy. I've lost my resources. I've lost my freedom. I've lost my the plans and dreams for my life. I've lost control. I've lost, I've lost my reputation, but I've gained more of him. None of those losses could take away what is actually my deepest joy. In fact, by losing them, it actually drove me only deeper into my deepest joy. And then let me give you one more. Here's chapter one, verse uh, 21. He writes this, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a crazy thing to say, but he's saying, I have found something that's so precious, that's so powerful, that not even death can take it away. In fact, when I experience death, I get net gain, because if you take away everything, including my life, what you're actually doing is only giving me everything, because you're giving me Jesus. You're taking me and plunging me deeper into the arms of my deepest joy, which is Jesus himself. So... This is this counterintuitive, upside-down, backwards uh, template that we're going to use as we approach and kind of walk through this book of what is it that we need to lose in order that we might gain this, this joy that he's talking about. And so um, for this morning, we're going to talk about, in this opening section, how we need to lose our consumerism, our consumerism. And what I mean by that is that every one of us, myself included, have this disposition where we go through life asking this question, what's in it for me? What do I get out of it? It's just, it's, it's a natural disposition. We all go through life motivated by self-interest. And Paul's going to show us that's actually a recipe for disappointment. It's a recipe for discontentment. If you want this kind of joy that he's talking about, we've got to lose that. So how do we do that? Well, two, uh, two ideas I want to suggest this morning. We need to change the way that we see ourselves. That's number one. And we need to change the way we see our stories. Number two. So, two big ideas. We have to change the way we see ourselves. 
We have to change the way we see our stories. And just to um, you know, cite, my, cite my sources here, you know, I've, if you know me, I've never had an original thought. Um, I am leaning heavily on other pastors like Brian Habig and Elliot Cherry and Brent Webster. And uh, so thanks to them. If there's anything beneficial that you're about to hear, it's from them. Anything offensive or insulting, that was me. That was my contribution. So, um, so first, let's talk about how we need to change how we see ourselves. How do we see ourselves? Well, if you look at the beginning, Paul's first thought when he's in a Roman prison is not help do something, get me out of here. His first thought is, I am thinking about this church in Philippi, and I'm praying for them with so much joy and so much gratitude. In fact, look at it. He gives us a little intro, this quick greeting in verses 1 and 2. But you get to verse 3, and he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. I mean, dude loves this church. He's sitting in this dark dungeon. He's praying for them. He's remembering them. He's, he's saying, I'm thinking about you with so much joy in my heart. In fact, it gets a little uncomfortable when you get down to verse 8. He says, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, the, the word there, affection, is the Greek word splachna which sounds more Russian than it does anything else, splachna. That means the depths of your being. In fact, splachna is where we get the word spleen from. It's, it's, to, it's to feel something in your guts, the deepest part of who you are, splachna. And uh, in, in Shakespeare's time, the word that they used was actually the word bowels, that if this were, you know, in Shakespeare's time, uh, this would be Paul saying, I, I yearn for you, I long for you with the very bowels of Jesus. You hear that and you think, that doesn't sound right. That sounds disgusting. Um, Isaac Watts is this uh, famous hymn writer. He wrote Joy to the World, famous. We've seen that at um, Christmas. He also wrote When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. In, in 1719, he wrote a hymn I'm not lying. This is one of his B-sides. B this is, you know, this is one of his, uh, you know, <laughs> tracks that didn't go mainstream. Um, it's called, Blessed is the Man Whose Bowels Move. That is not a joke. Dude wrote, that is a hymn, which how amazing would that be if we sang that song at Redeemer? Somebody needs to retune it. New music. It's actually a great song. It's about being moved with pity for the poor, but the language is a little uncomfortable. Anywho, um, why does Paul say, I long for you, I, I love you with this deep gut level love for this church? I'll tell you, it's not because uh, this church is perfect. In fact, you're going to find out later in the book, this church has problems that he has to address later in chapter four. He loves this church at this level primarily because of how he sees himself. Look at verse 1. He says, Paul and Timothy, and how does he describe himself? Servants of Christ Jesus. And the actual word there is, is, is slave. Slaves of Christ Jesus. It's, it makes us feel a little uncomfortable, so we try to mute it a little bit by saying servants. But he's saying, I, I see myself as a slave of Jesus, where Jesus is my master, and I wake up every morning to do his bidding, where I look at Jesus and I say, you know, your wish is my command. That is a very different way 
to see yourself. Modern, typical, you know, Americans don't see ourselves that way, especially when we relate to churches. So think about how you relate to church. Think about how you relate to Redeemer. If the way that you show up and the way that you see yourself is, well, I show up as a single person and I am here to connect with a community of people in the hopes that maybe I'll be able to meet somebody. If you come in with that mindset and then you connect with the community and and think, oh, this is great, there's a lot of options for me here, then you'll love Redeemer, you'll love the church. But if you show up and you don't get connected to other single people, you'll think, eh, this place is a little disappointing. Didn't have kind of what I was looking for. Eventually go somewhere else. Or if you show up and your primary mindset is, I show up as a parent and I am here because I want my children to have the best resources. And so I'm, I'm leaning on the children's ministry for all the bells and whistles to give them everything that I want them to have. And if you show up and you put your kids in our ministry and you like kind of what we're doing, you'll think, yeah, Redeemer is awesome. This church is great. But if you show up and we're not meeting all of the needs that you think your kids' needs should be met, you'll say this place is, I don't know, it's kind of lacking. Don't have it all together. I'll go somewhere else. See, the idea is if you show up as a consumer, you will never have gut-level love for the people here, and you won't have a joy here that transcends hardship and circumstances. Because here's the harsh reality is that um, church is not intentionally set up this way, but church is set up to frustrate you. It can't possibly meet the needs of every single person in this room. And so if you show up longing for all of your needs to get met, you will just eventually go to the next oasis, to the next church, the next place, and you'll bebop around just hunting, chasing the wind, longing for a church that will finally meet all of your needs. And there is not one that exists, by the way. Paul was moved with love for this church and with joy in his guts, not because this church in Philippi met all of his needs, but because he saw himself with them as on a mission together as slaves of Jesus. In fact, he shows you again, look at verse 5. He's thanking God for them. And then in verse 3 and 4, he says, I'm thanking God because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, the word partnership is the word koinonia. Maybe you've heard that before. It's often translated as fellowship. When modern people think about fellowship... We think of standing around and making small talk over punch and cookies. That's not the vision he has in his mind here. The word here really is partnership of like, if you think about two people who are going to be business partners together, if they're going to do a startup together, what do they do? They put their money where their mouth is. They pony up all the resources. They pool them together. They link arms and they go all in. And they say, we're doing this together. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, we, we have, I have linked arms with you, and we have gone all in on this mission together. I'm in jail. You're not. We're experiencing different things, but I still am relating to you with joy and affection because we're on the same team, and we're doing the same thing. When I was uh, doing campus ministry with RUF, uh, one year we took a group of students for a, a short-term spring break mission trip to the south side of Chicago. If you know anything about Chicago, the South side of Chicago is not the safest part of the city. And the first night that we were there, all four of our rental vans were broken into and the spare tires were stolen from them. Uh, We uh, were rehabbing this 
building, renovating this building, this one neighborhood, there was a person who was shot and killed one street over from where we were working one afternoon while we were there. It was in the middle of March, so it was freezing. Uh, we were sleeping on the floor of this gymnasium for the entire week, every single week. You know, we weren't like bebopping around getting deep dish pizza. We were eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on this stale bread all week long. And you would have thought, okay, a whole week of this, you would have gotten to the end and, and everyone that went would have been like, that was a mistake. We burned our spring break for this. Let's get home. But that's not what happened. Everybody at the end of the trip didn't really want to leave. Everybody's sticking around and taking pictures and group pictures and every, everybody felt like they're this, this team that they've we, we, we've, we've kind of suffered something together. We've experienced something hard together. But that's what happens. When you link arms with other people for the sake of the gospel, that's what happens. You start to get in touch with a joy that hardship can't touch. You start to experience deep gut-level love for these other people who are in the trenches with you. But here's the thing. Consumerism can never give you that. So you can show up and relate to different churches. You can show up at Redeemer, and you can be a consumer, and you can say, hey, I'm really only here because I, I like the music, I like the donuts, I like the, the cool people, I like the eye candy of the guy up front. And um, <laughs> you can relate to Redeemer like that, but you'll never experience this. You'll never experience deep gut-level love for each other and joy that hardship only intensifies. Because to get that, it has to cost you something. You have to lose something. You have to go all in. You have to partner. You have to link arms. And so if you want to join us in loving God and loving our neighbors in Midtown, it will cost you. It will cut into your reputation. It will cut into your budget. It will cut into the typical American schedule. It will, it will cut, it will, it will cost, you will lose something, but in the way of the kingdom, you also gain. So we have to change the way that we see ourselves. We're not consumers. We, we are slaves of Jesus and partners with each other for the sake of the gospel. But here's the second thing. We also have to change the way that we see our stories. We have to change the way that we see our stories. And uh, for this, look at verse 6. Paul says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, I know not everybody in this room considers himself a Christian. I know not everybody in this room would describe himself as someone who follows Jesus. If that's you, though, if you do consider yourself a Christian, or if you are a follower of Christ, Paul is saying your story is that God began a work in you, and he will complete it. God's the one who started it. He's the one who invaded your life with grace. He's the one who opened your eyes, softened your heart, brought you to himself. He's the one who started it, and he's the one who will complete it, which both are really good news because if you're anything like me, I'm great at starting things. I love starting new books, starting new shows on Netflix, at our home, I love starting new systems, creating new systems. Here's how we're going to do chores now. Here's how we're going to do meal plans now. I, I love starting things, but the problem with starting things is about four seconds after you start it, it starts to get boring. And it requires maintenance. And it gets tedious. 
And it's just so much more fun to just start something new. So this is why I have a whole stack of books in my office that I've started and never finished because it's just hard to finish. That's not how God relates to us, though. He doesn't get bored with us. He doesn't get tired of us. He doesn't get frustrated by us and just move on. He says, I am committed to you for the long haul. I, will st- I have started this work in you, and I will bring it to completion, which is what? Which is for you to look and live and believe and behave just like Jesus. That is your destiny. That's what he's doing in us, which means this. If you step back and think about it, which means your story from beginning to end is marked by grace. It's all of him. It's all his gift to you. That's why he says in verse 7, we are partakers of grace. Now, why is that a big deal? Why is that a big deal for you to see yourself in your entire story as being someone who is a recipient of grace? Well, think about it like this. Compare um, two different people. Compare person A, person B. Person A has a job, they go to their job, they work their job. At the end of the month, their employer gives them their paycheck. It's no more or no less than what they earned. It's their wages. It's what they deserved. When they get that paycheck, are they overwhelmed with gratitude and joy and wonder? No. They take it and go home because it's what they earned. It's what they deserved. Now, you compare that response to person B. I saw this uh, clip recently. I can't remember where I saw it somewhere on the interwebs, of this um, man who had been living out on the streets for some time, was uh, experiencing homelessness, and there were these four young guys who came up to him. I think it looked like it took place in India or something. This, this guy who had been living on the streets had long, kind of ratty hair and a long, big kind of beard, and he was wearing these dirty clothes, and he was really skinny. And you, you, you know how when you've seen people who've lived a, substan- a substantial amount of time outside, they just look weathered and, and just kind of broken down as a person. And so these four guys come up and literally pick him up, and, and the, the guy's kind of resisting and pushing them off of them at first, but they bring him inside, they're filming this all on their phones, and they sit him down, and they wash his hair, and give him a haircut, and they shave his beard, and he gets a shower, and they give him a hot meal, and then they put him in like a, like a suit and tie. And he just looked like totally transformed, just looked like they just restored his humanity and his dignity back to him. He looks handsome, this kind of older man, handsome, you know, fresh shaved. And they put a mirror in front of his face. And he breaks down weeping, overwhelmed with the just onslaught of kindness that just showed up in his lap. You know what that is? That's grace. Grace is there's this undeserved, unexpected thing out of the blue that enters into my life that is so good, that is so transforming. And Paul is saying, if you're in Christ, that's your whole story. Your story began with grace. It's being carried along by grace, and it will be completed by grace. That's why what Paul talks about more in this letter is, is not joy. I told you he mentions joy 16 times in four chapters, but you know what he talks about even more? He talks about Jesus. He mentions the name of Jesus 17 times in the first chapter. Why 
is Paul, while talking about joy, so consumed with also talking about Jesus. Well, think about this. Um, you might know the name John Lewis. I hope you do. He's uh, he was a civil rights activist, congressman. He um, died back in 2020 and has this amazing story, amazing career. He's one of, the, uh, he, one of the original 13 freedom riders from 1961. He was the youngest speaker at the uh, March on Washington. He uh, organized the Nashville sit-ins in the, in the early 60s. Uh, he, he was one that led the, the march across the bridge in Selma. He was beaten up by police, beaten up by um, people on the street. He's thrown, thrown in the jail uh, more times than he could count and uh, died back in 2020. And when he died, as a, as a result, all of these kind of behind-the-scenes stories about him and his life started to kind of make their way into the world. And I read about this one story that took place at um, President Obama's uh, inauguration. So on the day of Obama's inauguration, this is 2009, um, John Lewis comes up to Obama and actually asks him for his autograph. And uh, Obama takes the program, and here's what he signs on it. Barack Obama, because of you, John. Hands it back. There's a whole article about this, by the way. And the article says, okay, wh what did he mean by that? Here's what he meant by that. I owe everything to you. I am only here because of you, John. I'm standing where I'm standing because you paved the way. I'm experiencing this moment of, of glory only because you were willing to suffer ahead of me. Paul starts talking about Jesus for the same reason. He's saying we are only here because of Christ. We owe everything to him. We owe our very lives to him. We are only here breathing, living this moment as a gift because of what Jesus has done. And what did Jesus do? Well, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Now, there's two fascinating things about that. He's saying, on the one hand, Jesus endured the cross, which means he lost everything. He lost. Why was he willing to lose it all, though? because there was this joy waiting him on the other side. There was a joy that was set before him that made it worth it to him to endure losing his reputation and his comfort and his blood and his sweat and his tears and his oxygen and his very life. Do you know what the joy was? It was you and it was me. That is a deep gut level love unlike anything else that's willing to say, I am so willing to be with them. They are worth it enough to me that I'm willing to lose everything in order to get them. When you know that you are his greatest joy, do you know what that begins to do? When you start to get in touch with a love like that and a grace like that, do you know what that starts to do in your heart? It starts to melt away consumerism. It starts to chip away at this instinct that starts to say all of life really is about me. Because you know, what, you know what consumerism is. If you think about a black hole, a black hole is just this empty vacuum sucking everything into it, desperately trying to fill itself. If you have a person with emptiness on the inside, they're going to go through life sucking in everything that they can, trying to fill this void inside of them. But if you are already full, 
if you're in touch with joy and a love that transcends all this stuff, then you start to become somebody who gives, who sacrifices, who, who is so, like a fountain so full that it's overflowing over the banks of your own life and starts to flow into other people's lives. That's a joy that's very different than how most modern Americans think about it. How do you get it? How do you get that? It's pretty simple. You become a partaker of grace. That's it. That's the invitation. Partake of the grace that is available for you in Jesus. Amen. Let me pray. Father, what God is like you that would be willing to suffer, willing to die for us? That is, that is a love we don't know much about. That is a grace we don't really understand. I pray that you would overwhelm us, just like that man in that video, with how amazing, mind-blowing, shocking, disturbing your grace and your love for us really is. And would that so change us from the inside out that we might become people who don't show up in life asking what we can get, but who are willing to lose so that we might gain more of you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.